So we've, different people um, have brought different reflections on this week of prayer. And I, I want, there's something I wanted to bring to you, which um, we, we pray through the Psalms. I can really recommend this book, actually, which uh, we were using um, this week, which is The Power and Pleasure of Praying the Psalms, God's Prayer Book, by Ben Patterson. Uh, we only got through the first four psalms, but the idea is using the psalms as prayers themselves, just, to, just speaking out the psalms, but also this guy is very good at just taking one verse from the psalm and then suggesting how you may pray based on that verse. So really, um, if you, you want a book recommendation, that's a, that's a good one for me. Um, but we were reading Psalm 3, and there was a one word in particular in Psalm 3 that really spoke to me. So you might want to turn to, to Psalm 3 um, in your Bibles. Um, and, and I want, it's a little test now, see if you can spot the word that I was drawn to. Okay? I'm going to read it from um, the ESV version, but if you've got NIV, which most people have, it's very similar, so you, you'll better follow along. Um, so I'm going to read it out to you, see if you can spot my word. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. Okay, can anyone guess the word I was drawn to? Okay, we have a selah here, we have a selah there. Anyone else? Selah. It's kind of a... What does it mean? Ah, very good question, Isabel. Well, the word is selah, yes. That's the word I was drawn to. And the reason why I was drawn to it is because if you read in your NIV versions there, it's not there, is it? It's not there. Where's it reading this word from? If you look in your footnotes, in the very small, tiny print, in about 0.6 font, um, it is there to explain um, that it's... Yeah. It's, it's there in the original Hebrew, it's in the text, but the NIV has chosen to not put it, translate it. And it's a word, I'll, I'll come back to your question in a second, Isabel, it's a word that occurs 74 times in the Bible, 71 of those times are in the Psalms, three of them in, are in Habakkuk, in the 71 times in the Psalms, this is all my stats that I did my googling on, it's in 30, I didn't... You know, I didn't research this myself, I just looked on Google. It's in 39 different Psalms. And it's a Hebrew word, and here's your answer, Isabel. Nobody really knows what it means. Okay? And that's, is that what it says in your footnotes? Nobody really knows. Okay? Um, and so I'm going to spend this morning focusing on a word that nobody really knows what it means. Is that good? Is that, you know, are we going to, this is, we love to speak truth, and we love, you know... <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. So um, let me give you some um, ideas here from Strong's, which um, Strong's is a, a, what's called a concordance. And it, it, this, this guy took every single Hebrew word, put a number next to it, and then give a translation into English. And it's called the Strong's Concordance. In the Strong's Concordance, um, it says to lift up or exalt. 
and it says it's probably a technical musical term probably showing an accentuation or uh, or a pause or an interruption <coughs> you know what I've, I drift towards this word because it's a lot of people say it's a musical word so I'm kind of okay, I like this there's another uh, concordance that suggests that it means to rest to be silent or to silence again it reckons it's a musical notation it seems to be a pause in the singing of the words of the psalm so the singer needs to be silent and possibly while the music continues on in the Septuagint anyone know what the Septuagint is? we're having a, a theology lesson or a history lesson no? Is it, oh, go on. Isn't it one of the ancient scripts? It is. It is the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So in about the second century BC, they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, because a lot of people spoke Greek in those days. And in that translation, the Greek word is rendered, which means interlude. Okay? Are we confused yet? Some people says it means end. Some people says it means possibly even louder. This is brass players have translated this. You know, the trumpet players of the day probably said, yes, this probably means play the trumpet really loud at this plot because we like to do that. <laughs> there's no consensus, there's no certainty. So I'm today going to f- focus on this mysterious word which nobody really knows what it means and the word is selah. Now, if you know, um, some, it's, the Bible is strange sometimes because a lot of it we have translated and there are many different translations, you realise that. So a lot of you are reading what's called the New International Version, the NIV, which is a pretty well-respected version, quite common, quite easy to read. There are other translations similar to it, like the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you like your, your these and thous, the King James Version, which comes from 15 or 16 something or other. When was King James? I can't remember. 16, is it? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, That's another translation from the original text, which would have been in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, uh, into English. But some of the words are left untranslated. So, for instance, the word hallelujah, we all know what hallelujah means. It means praise the Lord. But oftentimes that isn't translated praise the Lord. It's translated, not translated, just left as hallelujah because... We know what it means. And also, it's kind of just that sort of almost the universal but Jewish word for praise the Lord. Okay? So that's, that's left untranslated. It's what we call transliterated in terms of it's put into English in the way that they would say it. Hallelujah. I'm, my Hebrew pronunciation isn't great, I'm sure. And salo is another one of those words, mainly because possibly people don't know what it means, but we've left it. This is how it sounds. Sela. Okay? Or sila, some people say now the context of the word selah in all these, these places you find it in the Bible tends to lean to it towards being a musical fr- term hooray, I like this because it's in Psalms and all the Psalms it's in nearly all the Psalms it's in at the beginning of the Psalm and if you notice in your Bibles it will say to the musical director and then it will give some musical instruction and it's oftentimes in those Psalms that the word selah appears and also in Habakkuk the, the, there's three chapters in Habakkuk and the last chapter is a song and that is where we find the word Selah. So it kind of lends itself to being a musical thing. All right. And possibly this idea where because it's also connected with rest or pause that there's a stop or a pause in the words and the music may continue where there's, there's a gap or a, a chance to breathe, a chance to reflect, a chance to take in the words that have just been spoken um, while the music carries on. 
um, a moment maybe to consider what God's saying. And what have we been doing this week? A lot of it has been stopping, praying and considering what God's saying to us. Um, And so it kind of spoke to me that there is this mysterious word that actually speaks of just taking a moment, taking a breath. Maybe let the music carry on, but just you stop. You stop speaking. And let's allow this mysterious word to ponder the mysteries of our mysterious, wonderful, amazing, awesome God. And we may not fully appreciate what he's saying. We may not fully understand it. We may be a bit like, well, what is this sailor word? But nevertheless, God is speaking to us. Let's just appreciate it. Now, you can skip over the word. If you read your NIV translations, it's not even there in the text. You can skip over the word Selah, and you won't miss the meaning of those words. The meaning doesn't change, does it? You know, when I read Psalm 3 to you, the meaning doesn't change because we miss out that word. But if we were to take that pause and make that moment of Selah and give just a bit of breath and space as we read and absorb in what God is saying, maybe we would appreciate the meaning more, or maybe even appreciate the meaning at at all, because aren't we very good at just rushing on? Are we good at that? I mean, liturgy lends itself to this. Daniel was saying to me, we were talking about this, you know, in his, his upbringing in his school, it was liturgy all day, every day kind of thing, and it just becomes almost monotonous. We become so familiar with it, we just go, and we say it, and we don't even know what we said. But the Selah causes us just to stop and think, well, what have I just said? What have I just read? What has God just spoken to me? So I'm going to... Chris, would you mind there's the, um, the, the PowerPoint? I've, I've put Psalm 3 and I've, I've written it out so with the Selah there. I'll read it out to you again and I'll, and I'll, and I'll take a little pause. I won't play the piano in the, in the middle. Um, but I'll, I'll read it out to you again and we'll just take a moment just to, to, to take those gaps, take those pauses as we read it. Oh, Lord... How many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, I don't know if that had a different impact on you. But I don't know about you, but just taking those moments, those pauses, it's quite awkward to do sometimes, but worth it. Worth it just to take that moment, take that breath, and say, okay, I'm going to listen. Just to reflect on what's just been said. You, if you've listened to me for a while, you'll, you'll know that one of my favourite composers is Mahler. 
I know. She, she, I don't know if Sheila, if you got on with Marla at all, but because uh, uh, Sheila was going to do some listening to Marla, I haven't even mentioned it a few times. But Marla's one of my favourite composers. His second symphony is called the Resurrection Symphony, um, and and is an hour and a half long. So it's a sort of, and a lot of Marla's music is very deep and complex, and and really brings you through the, the mill of going through the, the depths of despair sometimes and then bringing you to, in, as in the case of the Resurrection Symphony, right at the end where uh, speaking very positive affirmation and, and very almost biblical words of, of there will be, there is life and, and we will rise again. And it's, it's very affirming. Um, but anyway, I say it's an hour and a half long. The first movement in itself is about 25 minutes. And so it's quite long. So, I mean, most people, most people have switched off after three, haven't they? You know, but you, you have to stick with it. But Marla writes in the score, after the first movement, he suggests there be a five-minute break, which hardly anybody ever does in performance. Because five minutes, with an orchestra on stage and a conductor kind of just standing there like this, you know, in an audience. Normally, if you go to a classical concert, in the gaps, the, the audience likes to cough. It's almost like I say, you'll notice this, if you go to the proms, it's all silent. And then at the end of the first movement, <coughs> and everybody's just like clearing their throats as if everyone's got tuberculosis or something. And, and um, but even that doesn't take five minutes, you know. <laughs> so to have five minutes of silence, it's a it's an it's a difficult one. But it's almost like Marlowe was saying, "What is we're talking about here? What this piece of music is grappling with is so big. We just need to have a moment where we just kind of go." And, and if you actually stop, I have seen it done in performance a few times. So I remember seeing it at the proms. And Simon Rattle just stopped. And we all just waited. And it's quite profound to have that moment of just waiting and just taking in what has just happened. What has just been spoken. What's just been done. Now sometimes in the Psalms, the Selahs happen in strange places. In Psalm 3... They happen quite nicely at the end of a sort of a verse, if you like, and you can think, right, I'll get what that verse is about. So the first verse, a couple of two verses there, Lord, how many of my foes, many are rising against me. It's basically, you know, there's, people are against me. So I'm going to just ponder on that and just reflect on that and how that works in my life. That kind of makes sense. But I'm going to, if Christian wouldn't mind putting up the next one, which is Psalm 55. These cellars come in very strange places. If you look at the sentence structure here, I'll, I'll read you. I've just taken a couple of sections from Psalm 55. Um, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horrors overwhelm me. And I say, oh, that I had the wings like a dove and I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And there it finishes the sentence. Do you see, it's kind of like there's this pause in the middle of the sentence. And it does it again later on, you can see where it's done on. And I thought to myself, isn't this actually a bit like life? You know how you're just going about your daily life and then something just happens and you have to just stop, it kind of stops you in your tracks. And you think, ah... And then the kids carry on 
talking or the dinner still needs to be made or the, the, the journey needs to be continued otherwise you'll be stuck on the side of the motorway. Do you see that actually sometimes those moments of Selah happen in our lives in unexpected places and we can't predict when they're going to happen because if I was writing this psalm I would have put that just two lines later. Wouldn't you? It would seem to make sense. But actually life isn't like that, is it? You know, how many times are we doing something and we think, oh, it's going like this, even if it's a, a down thing and you think, oh my goodness, this is really hard work. Oh, and then there's this sudden interruption and we have a moment and if we take the moment, we can just pause and dwell in that moment for good or for bad and then move on because actually then life carries on. So I wonder whether that's... There are cellar moments in the, in the scriptures and in strange places and it's a bit like life. Now, I was wondering if we could take these sailors in Scripture and allow them to help us to appreciate the goodness of God. But I think there's a wider application. I think, imagine rewriting the story of our lives, and the, if we were to rewrite them to include some sailors in our life, how different things would be. Making just a moment or a time to pause and reflect, to absorb on what has just happened. Particularly when something good happens in our lives. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I've heard this a few times, but I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't know if you know this. But did you know that our brain, this thing that God has given us, is built in with a negative bias? What do I mean by that? Um, well, studies have shown that it typically takes five good interactions to make up for one single bad interaction. Okay? Studies have shown that painful experiences are much more memorable than pleasurable ones. So scientists will say that the brain is like Velcro for negative things. It sticks. And our brain is like Teflon for positive things. It just slides off. Now think about it. If you're not, you don't agree with me, think about it. How many times... Well, imagine yourself. If people were paying you compliments all day and one person criticises you, what are you going to go home with? Yeah. It's just our brains have a built-in negative bias. We like to hold on. Well, not so that we like to. Our brains hold on to negative experiences a lot easier than they do positive ones. And when we hold on to those things inside us, with the negative things, we become more anxious, we become irritable, we become low. And so taking a sailor from time to time, when something good happens, will improve not only our mental health, but our faith as well. Uh, let me say that actually science, these, this research is actually backing up what the New Testament says. Let me read you something from the New Testament, which I think is an expanded version of, of having a sailor. It says in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. So what we're saying there is like when something is true, or something is pure, or something is excellent or praiseworthy, it doesn't have to be happening within church, by the way, but it can be. But when just something good happens, think about it. Just think about it. 
and put into practice that Selah moment in daily life. Take time to appreciate and enjoy that positive experience. Because our brain doesn't easily take that in. Because it's thinking, well, it's easier for me to take in the criticism. Does that do us any good? And so the scientists say, and the, the, in fact it's not just the scientists, but the, the contemplative says as well, when something good happens, or somebody compliments you, or something, a situation turns out positively, or something you just enjoy, you're having a savouring a mouth of food, and you think, I like the taste of this. Stay with it for 20 or 30 seconds, they say, the, the scientists say, and the, the, the people that speak about um, meditation. Stay with it for 20 or 30 seconds, meaning don't just rush off and get distracted by something else. But this is good. Live in this moment. This is good. It may be just the taste of your toast this, in the morning with some jam on it. I've got some homemade jam from Wendy. It's very nice. I savour that taste. It may be the only thing that happens this day that is good. It may be, but I'm just going to live in this moment. And as I live in this moment, as it says here, whatever is excellent, this jam is excellent. I'm just going to live and I'm going to enjoy that. Because it takes a while for that good moment to stick in my mind. Because my mind is like Teflon for those good moments, remember. But the more we do that, researchers says, the, the more you can hold those good moments in your in yourself the more neurons this is actually science the more neurons fire and wire together a stronger memory in your memory which brings about a better mental health and if we put this in the context of faith surely a stronger faith that when we take that moment and say this is good God you are good God and then don't just run off and say something else but actually just dwell in that moment it stays with us and changes us, if we allow it to. And over time, it builds up a store inside us, in our brain and also in our heart, in our, in our soul, of contentment. Contentment in the good things that God has provided and in contentment in the goodness of God himself. And in Christ, the peace of God grows in us. So I want to suggest that we learn how to practice Selah in our lives. We're not very good at living in the moment, are we? You know, I don't know about you, but Scotland are playing Japan in the rugby, and so it's very easy for me to be thinking about the next thing. But I want to dwell in this moment now with you, okay? I want to dwell in this moment. Like Emma, Emma's thing that she says every week, pretty much, it is good to be together. Let's just live in that. It is good to be together. It's been good to pray together. It's been good to hear God's voice together. It's been good to sing together. Let's live in that. You know, somebody paid me... Here's the thing. This is what, and we, we're terrible at it because this week somebody was complimenting me for something, I, and, and some, something I'd done. And my, my embarrassed reaction is like, oh no, don't... And so I started almost... Inter- I did interrupt them and then start to tell them, oh, but you've done a good job as well. And that's because I couldn't just stop and allow that person to go, you've done a good job, and let it wash over me. And maybe even just on the phone kind of go, do you mind if I just take a moment, I'll just take that in. And I think we should learn to do that. Someone pays you a compliment, just stop and let that affirmation sink in. Because your brain will quickly take the, the criticism 
a lot quicker than it will take the, the compliment. So learn to take it in. I need to learn to take it in. Practice that sailor, that, that good practice of just stopping and staying with something, not rushing away. And I have to say, actually, if I think about it, this whole week of prayer has been a sailor moment for me. I've been able to just come here in the mornings and just have a time of just stopping and reflecting with God and being with God and taking in some of the good things that have happened. But I think just to, to finish with, I want us to do this. I'm going to read to you some words, which are the words that the Father speaks to the Son at, the, at Jesus' baptism. But I truly believe that in Christ, if we are in Christ, these words are our words. They're words spoken to us. And they're very familiar words, and you can probably go, and probably even recite them with me as I say them. But I want us to take a sailor moment as we hear these words, let them soak into us, and let them overcome the Teflon in our brain that says, this is good, so I'm going to let it slide off and allow it to stick as we just stay with it for a few moments. And then we'll sing... One final song and then and we'll close. But if in closing you feel as though you just want to dwell in the moment, don't rush away. Don't rush away. So let me read these words. These are words spoken to you from, from God. You are my child whom I love. In you I am well pleased. These are the words to us from God the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. Come Holy Spirit and embed them in us now. You are my child, whom I love. In you I am well pleased.